Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. of Olympus. I'm Hercules Invictus, and I'm honored to announce that we are starting our Mythic Gaming Reviews again uh, very soon. Uh, Until we have new reviews to share, I'll be sharing some of the older reviews from our archives, beginning with The Mighty Sons of Hercules Game by Milton Bradley. Uh, That's long out of print, and it came out during the heyday of the syndicated television show. And uh, anyway, onward to the review. The Heraclides of myth were mercilessly hunted by King Abristeos, who feared the legitimate claim to his throne. Once he even tried to slay them all during a memorial feast held in honor of their famed father. Those who escaped raised an army and deposed the tyrant king. Later, they were driven out of Greece as their collective might was perceived as a great threat. An oracle was consulted, and a prophecy granted. The exiled daughters and sons of Hercules wandered the wider world, and eventually some of them settled down. Their mighty progeny returned to Hellas a few generations later as the Dorian invaders. In my childhood imagination, all of the events of the Sons of Hercules television series happened during these turbulent times. Although I later discovered that clever marketing was a much greater factor in shaping the show than honoring a very obscure mythic continuity, to this day, I prefer to believe my own innocent explanations rather than the sordid facts. In The Sons of Hercules, the board game by Milton Bradley, you're one of four Sons of Hercules competing for fame and glory in an arena packed with cheering spectators. There are six epic tasks to complete and... Once you've triumphed in one of these contests, you win a coveted arm ring. Then aside from feats of strength, you can challenge your brothers and half-brothers for possession of their own hard-won award rings. Two to four heroes can compete, and the winner is the first to gather four award rings. Each game takes about 15 minutes to complete. 
The Sons of Hercules was easy to learn and quick to play. It brought back many treasured memories and is well worth playing for nostalgic reasons alone. I've already figured out a way of integrating it into my next RPG campaign. Thank you to Jeffrey C. Hogue, a.k.a. Doc, for gifting me with this treasure from much simpler times. And thanks to the development team of the 1960s TV show, including the epic songwriter whose true identity still remains an enigma. Whatever their motives, they deeply influenced my personal destiny. And here I am uh, with Voice of Olympus, Pride of Olympus, and the Elysium Project, all inspired by TV shows such as this from my youth. And we proceed onwards to Ron Carson's Coliseum. Ron Carson has joined us. Greetings and welcome, Ron. How are you? Good evening, Sabbath. How are you doing? I'm doing phenomenally well. Uh, very busy. Yeah, I know. How it's been a busy you? day for me as uh, I'm pulling double duty here. I had to do the morning show this morning, and I have to go back at it tomorrow because my boss is on vacation. So I'm pretty much splitting my day, and I kind of like, what do you call Um <clears throat> kind of at a loss for words over here, you know, in more ways than That's one. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> the words will come. But the so, bottom line is that uh, I'm, you know, doing uh, what I love to do, and I'm making some time to uh, pretty much come on the air and talk about the Coliseum, and we picked a pretty good picture, too, to talk about, too. So why don't you share that first? What picture have you chosen uh, this month? Today we're focusing on the seventh voyage of Sinbad. How about that? Ah, <laughs> I remember that. Yep. And uh, this was a very, very uh, interesting movie that took almost a year to complete, being of all the special effects. And they were, of course, responsible by the production of Ray Harryhausen, who you're familiar with, of course. Of course. And the movie was directed by Nathan H. Duran, and the title role was played by Kerwin Matthews, who also, of course, appeared in the Warrior Empress Peplum movie alongside Tina Louise, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And other uh, supporting characters in the film included Torin Thatcher, Catherine Grant, who just recently celebrated a birthday, according to our friends at Bethlehem Paradise, Richard Ayer, and Alec Mango, just to name a few. Now, this was the first of a trilogy of Sinbad feature films released by Columbia Pictures, and the latter two in the 70s, which I remember we saw in the theater, too. Yes, yeah, there's yes, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Yes. And uh, pretty much uh, this was a movie that was using the sheer magic of Dinorama. <laughs> as, uh, it, it pretty much was an experimental production, but it turned out to go be released, you know, received very well by audiences. And critics think that this is the best film of the Sinbad trilogy. It carries a 100% approval rating. And by all means, you know, this one was the one that started it all, so to speak. 
and it was based on the book Sinbad the Sailor from 1001 Nights. You've probably read that book at one point in your life. Yes, I have, uh, several times. I'm sure you did, <laughs> being you're the avid reader that I know that you are, cuz. And um, let's take you uh, into the journey of the seventh voyage of Sinbad, where he, along with his ship's crew, made landfall in the island of Colossa. And they encounter a magician by the name of Sakura. Sakura was played by Torin Thatcher, just in case you wanted to know. And the uh, villains of the movie include a giant cyclops and also a bird known as the rock with two heads, if you remember. Yes, I remember, of course. How could you, so how we'll could get you forget to the, that? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry? How could you forget that? <laughs> how can you forget this? This is like, you know, cinema at its uh, utmost best because you would never get movies like this today as opposed to in the times when we were growing up over here. Um, as you know, Sinbad was involved with the princess of Chandra, Parisa, and they're about to be married. And... Sakura performs some magic and it kind of like backfires because he shrinks the princess and the Sultan of Chandra is enraged by this act. And the Caliph of Baghdad, yes, uh, Baghdad is Sinbad's hometown, the capital of Iraq, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And because of this, there was a declaration of war. And they needed an eggshell of a rock to submit a potion that would restore Parissa to normal size and could only be found where else but in Colossa. So Sinbad recruits some crew members, but unfortunately they create a mutiny and they are all captured. And during a violent storm, the ship was pretty much uh, un- uncharted going one place to another, but eventually they reach their destination of Colossa, and they encounter their first battle with the Cyclops. And there is a magic lamp also in the mix over here, which would kind of like solve everybody's problems, but the problem is that uh, the Cyclops is pretty very well uh, guarding this magic lamp, so this is their mission. The adventure is to get the magic lamp, and in one point, Sinbad gets into a fight with one of the Cyclopses and pretty much blinds him, and the Cyclops pretty much towers down to his death. And then eventually, they go to the nesting place of the giant rocks, the the bird with two heads. Mm -hmm. And as they break open a rock egg... They pretty much befriend a childlike genie inside the magic lamp by the name of Barani. And they want to have his wisdom and his two cents worth in order to get their freedom back intact. But unfortunately, Sinbad's loyal Harufa met an untimely death by Sakura and he takes the princess to a underground fortress. So the magician is not exactly a very nice guy. He's not exactly the uh, 
on their side in this picture, if you remember. I, yes, it's been a while since I've seen the film, and I've seen several uh, newer versions, including one with Lou Ferrigno, but it's been a while since I've seen the film. Yeah, but this is the original we're talking about over yes. here. Um, eventually, Sakura restored the princess to her normal size, and then that's because Sinbad had the magic lamp in his possession, but eventually he refuses to hand it over to his foe, and the magician creates a skeleton warrior, which also, ironically, made a comeback in another Peplum movie, Seven-Armed Skeletons Fighting Jason and Jason and the Argonauts, if you recall yeah, that yes. scene. Oh, yes, of and course. That's a famous... So that was, that was the prelude. I, I couldn't hear you. That's an epic uh, and iconic scene. Yes. Exactly. But now we're going into uh, the climactic part of the uh, movie where they uh, meet the Cyclops and a dragon that Sinbad releases, and then the dragon defeats the uh, Cyclops. And then Sakura meets his untimely fate as the dying dragon collapses on him, believe it or not. And the scenes with the dragon are not were not very easy to film, as a matter of fact. Because of uh, budget constraints, the model was over three feet long, if you remember, and they couldn't animate it the way they wanted to. So that particular mm-hmm. sequence took nearly a month for Ray Harryhausen to complete. And he couldn't use real fire to emanate from the dragon's nose and mouth. So... In turn, there was a flamethrower that shot out the fire 30 to 40 feet against the night sky and then superimposing that particular image near the dragon's mouth and nose. So um, there was a lot of creativity to this. And, you know, unfortunately, movies at that time didn't have a very, very big budget, too. So they had to improvise. And eventually... When the dragon met his untimely death, and so was, so did the magician, Sakura, Sinbad, Parisa, and the rest of the crew departed to Baghdad. And then finally, Barani filled the captain's cabin with a treasure from the Cyclops' cave, which was a wedding gift to both the happy couple of Sinbad and Parisa. So there you go. I'm sure that I uh, jogged your memory in more ways yes, than one of us. It sounds like a lot of fun, and now I need to dig out my copy and and watch it. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure you do have a copy of it somewhere, whether on video or DVD, for sure. Uh, Yes, most certainly so. Especially in the early days of my collecting, I was a completist. Now uh, I focus mostly on the mythical uh, uh, tales, and I leave the historical ones and the uh, um, Mm -hmm. other cultural ones. You know, if, if I can find them, fine. If I can't find them, that's okay, too. But there's hundreds of movies. Yeah, so uh, I mentioned earlier, Catherine Grant played the part of the princess, and she just turned 85 today. God bless her. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to Catherine. And uh, Barani the Genie was portrayed, like I said, by Richard Ayer, and Alec Mango was the Caliph of Baghdad. And Harold Casket was Parisa's father, the Sultan. So I just wanted to throw some names for you on this, uh, just to remind you of who... uh, 
pretty much accomplish this movie. The musical score, ironically, was done by a gentleman by the name of Bernard Herman. If you are familiar with his work with the Alfred Hitchcock movies, he was responsible for that eerie soundtrack in the uh, film Psycho. I'm not that familiar with music, but uh, now if you mentioned uh, Alfred Hitchcock, I recall the music on Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, if you remember, the real scary music on Psycho was composed by the same gentleman who gave you the musical score for Sinbad, Bernard Herrmann. Very cool. And the soundtrack was featuring the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. And they described their uh, rendition of the of the soundtrack and music as rich and vibrant. <laughs> so they really, really, they really, really went all out on this. And ironically, they released the movie during the Christmas holidays in late 1958, and it grossed in its first three weeks over three million dollars, which over Back 60 then years ago amazing. that was a lot of money. Yes. Plenty of money. My God, three and a half million. How can you even fathom it? And they made this movie with a budget. The budget even was tilting towards over a half a million dollars, 650,000 to be exact. So we're talking about uh, quite a bit of moolah to make a film of this caliber in uh, 1958. And ironically, some of the, like I said, the skeletons make their return appearance on uh, Jason and the Argonauts, and there was also a Cobra woman figure in the Sinbad movie, which was recreated as Medusa in Clash of the Titans, the original version in 1981. Uh-huh. And um, it's like, it's pretty much... Uh, it's pretty much a recreation of uh, the, these, you know, supporting characters who are also the uh, protagonists in the film, making a comeback in other Peplum movies of that same sort. Yes, so, very true. Uh, a, a lot of those actors came back uh, time and again in the genre. Um, and then moved on to other genres uh, after that. But uh, there, there was quite a recurring cast of characters uh, in these old movies. All right. Did you notice that uh, the Cyclops in the movie was patterned by the Greek god Pan? Yes. Who had a horn, goat legs, and cloven hooves. Yes. That was an interesting combination of uh, fabulous beasts, the Cyclops and the Seder. They did yes, the same uh, I mean, I think they, as well. The scene when Sinbad fights the Cyclops and the scene when the Cyclops and the dragon duke it out, resulting in the magician's death afterwards, too, I think are the two climactic parts of the film. Yes, I think so. Was a lot of, weren't there sequels to the seventh uh, voyage of Sinbad? Yes, I told you earlier in the uh, chat, there was two others in the early 70s, which we saw in the theater, if you remember. The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, yes, yes. 1973, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, which was released in 77. I remember I remember the movie, Sinbad movies came out, but I don't recall if it was a continuing cast of uh, 
the same actors or whether they were recast for the other movies? I don't know because I didn't get information about the sequels, but I'll get back to you on that for sure. But I remember okay. when you first moved to Tenafly, we went to the theater and we went to see that third movie, I remember. Yes. Yes, that was many, many moons ago. Yeah, I know, but that's when movies were magic, my uh, cousin. You know that already. <laughs> yes, I do. It's like we we treasured the cinema that we grew up with. That's very, that's in very more true. In what? It, it made a very lasting impression on us and uh, influenced us in our uh, careers and in the courses of our lives. So very powerful uh, um, stuff. Um, yes, uh, I'm surprised that there weren't very many. Like, like I said, I know that Ferrigno made a Sinbad movie, and I believe there was another one uh, that was a bit more modern. Uh, but uh, I know that uh, Aladdin or The Thief of Baghdad, uh, that's become very yes. popular in our culture. But, uh, but Sinbad seems uh, to have faded uh, from view, and I don't recall anything really spectacular being made uh, about the, the, the sailor uh, who had many adventures. I'll give you another uh, trivia. Remember we used to watch the cartoon Sinbad, too, with the talking parrot? Yes, yes. That was on and Channel was, 11 also, if you recall. And, and, and in was, answer uh, to your question on the sequels, nobody from the original movie was in any of the uh, follow-up Okay, films, yeah. I, I didn't think so. Yes, right now. Yeah, in, in uh, memory, Patrick again, Wayne, Jim. Uh-huh. Patrick Wayne, who was John Wayne's son, did the title role in the latter film, and John Philip Law was Sinbad in the 1973 movie. But Ray Harryhausen had a hand in both of those sequels as well. Just to let you know. Yeah, Ray Harryhausen was awesome. Oh, he was a brilliant mind in the uh, sword and sandal genre, for sure. I mean, his contributions were just so, so amazing. And, and we were all in awe whenever we would see these uh, images come to light because he truly, truly knew how to make the audience, you know, captivated by the uh, particular pictures. And the bottom line is that he actually made uh, you, you know, attentive during those movies too in more ways than one. Oh, yes. As uh, always, you know, go ahead. No, he did. I, I had the fortune of meeting him when I had my television show. Uh, I interviewed yeah. him, and he was on uh, an episode or two of my TV show, and then uh, uh, I included him in the movie that we made. So uh, uh, wow. that was a high point because he, 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 he died not shortly thereafter, but um, I didn't get a chance to speak with him again. So I was very fortunate to have gotten a chance to meet him, uh, to speak mm-hmm. with him and to thank him for inspiring my uh, childhood. Yes, and uh, that enough is a satisfaction in itself that you actually got to say that to him in person. Yes, he was. At one point in life, even though you wish you would have continued the uh, relationship with him, but his untimely passing uh, pretty much uh, prevented that from happening. But I'm pretty sure Ray is with you in spirit, Sadhana. Oh, of course, as are his animated monsters. They're very much a part of my imagination. <laughs> Everybody's imagination, for sure. I mean, it's, like I said, the creation of a very brilliant mind and uh, the uh, contributions that he's made to this genre of film are 
you know, unbeatable with a capital U for sure, unbeatable. But uh, in answer to your question, no, none of the original performers of the first movie made any appearances on any of the two sequels back in the 1970s. Okay, yeah, and like sequels, I said, my, my memory's poor, but I didn't, I didn't remember them being, uh, you know, continuing. I remember the story continued, but uh, I couldn't remember if the, uh, the original actors did. So thank you for clarifying that for me. Ironically, the sequels both made $11 million. Wow. But they pretty much didn't, they pretty much broke even a little bit more uh, because the budget came close to a million in making both of these movies. So they made like a slight profit. That's a good thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, it happens. Uh, Like I said, with sequels, it's not like the original presentation, but the original version for its day really, really made uh, an impact financially and still makes an impact to this day for people who are fans of this particular character. He's one of the timeless mythical greats. I remember they even made a Popeye episode where uh, uh, Brutus played Simba. That is correct. That is correct. Oh, yeah, you just don't get this type of entertainment like that in this so-called 21st century anymore, you know? Nope. Different types of uh, things are popular now. Um, You had mentioned um, Pepple in Paradise a little earlier, and uh, as everyone who listens to the show knows, we have a very high opinion of uh, um, Pepple in Paradise, the group, Uh, Stephen Smith and Nick Whale, the admins, and all the wonderful people who congregate there, some of whom have Mm -hmm. uh, shows uh, on our channel as well. Um, So uh, we recommend Peplum Paradise very highly. Uh, It's a place you'll want to visit, not just once, but uh, very often. Um, And uh, usually in your wanderings through the Phantom, you find other uh, places that are worth a visit. Uh, have you found any new locations to share with us today? No, I wanted to keep sticking with Peplum Paradise. Okay. Because I want as many people to go into that uh, page. I want many people to join the group. If you're a fan of this particular genre of motion pictures and TV shows, you pretty much need to be in this group for sure. And the two gentlemen, Nick Whale and Stephen Smith, who are loyal and true to us, and I do believe they're up late at night listening to this broadcast across the pond as we speak. Big shout out to them. Greetings, Stephen. Greetings, Nick. Greetings all who visit Peplum Paradise. Now in the present and in future when the show is available on demand. Greetings and welcome. You're an awesome bunch of people. Absolutely. And it's a great place to be uh, nostalgic and to uh, check out some very important information about the uh, performers who contributed their two cents to this uh, genre of motion pictures. And the most I love about this uh, group, it's drama-free. You know? Yeah, that's always a good thing. Life is it too is short always for a good thing. online drama. Yep. I, uh, I manage a... Uh, Gilligan's Island group. I'm an admin for the 1964 to 1967 Gilligan's Island group, and I try to keep it as drama-free as possible. I'm also an admin for the uh, Batman uh, group, too, and 
I pretty much want to keep that uh, free and clear because of the fact that the aim on both of these uh, groups is to, to reminisce about these beloved shows that we all grew up with, and we don't really need this extra, what do you call, toxic uh, environment, which unfortunately exists on Facebook. And I pretty much lately, in both groups, I took action when they were reporting posts. I would just block the individuals that uh, pretty much uh, are causing this mayhem. And, you know, I'm trying to keep this as drama-free as possible, just like Nick and Steve. And that's what I'm learning between the two of them when I look at the Peplum Paradise group. I want the groups that I'm an admin at for these two beloved TV shows that are near and dear to me in my life, that we can all congregate and think back to the good old days and talk about the shows and talk about the characters and talk about the contributions they've made in certain scenes of each episode. But there's just no room for, uh, you know, putting inappropriate and dramatic comments and causing friction because as an administrator, I will pretty much release you from the group if uh, you are actually causing this type of behavior because there's no room for it. Yes, that is a very wise uh, thing. I'm glad you're adopting a policy and you do indeed have uh, um, uh, two very good role models in uh, Stephen and Nick. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, I learned from their example on how they are running Peplum Paradise. And that is exactly the motif that I'm using in order to keep the groups that I'm an administrator in, you know, on full cylinders, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I thank both Nick and Steve for giving me that inspiration. If they're listening, God love them. They're very, very, uh, you know, much an influence to me. And I'm learning a lot as a fellow administrator between the two of them. So, uh, I definitely wanted to uh, acknowledge that to both of them on your show. While you were speaking, I, I used to have uh, interviews of uh, Stephen and Nick uh, long before we had the radio show. Um, and uh, then we had a mishap when transferring information from our old computer to our new computer. So uh, mm-hmm. I believe I might have it backed up uh, somewhere on, uh, um, on one of those little devices uh, but I found Nick's uh, interview, so I'm going to post that here in the thread for uh, um, today's show. In this way, if anybody would like to read and learn more about one of the founders of Peplum Paradise, it'll be available to them. Mm-hmm. There it is. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so it is over there. So the end of the year fast uh, approaches and a new year uh, begins. Uh, we're in 2020 yes. already. Who would have believed it? And uh, do you have any um, um, things that you'd like to accomplish in the year ahead? Well, I'm just forwarding, you know, in my career. I'm doing the best I can and being a, uh, you know, model entertainer for uh, WSBS, my radio station up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, which serves three different states on the dial which includes, of course, uh, most of Berkshire County in Massachusetts, northwestern Connecticut, and eastern New York, and uh, 
you know, I just want to, uh, you know, see more growth in my uh, status at work, where I'm hoping I can pretty much uh, accomplish more uh, goals and more uh, obligations and to pretty much entertain my audience, and that's what it's all about. I mean, my goal in 2020 is to just keep forging ahead as what I'm doing in 2019. And that makes a lot of sense. I invite everybody who is listening to uh, tap into our website. It's WSBS.com. Click the uh, Listen Live Now icon on the home page, and you'll get our live stream. If you have one of those smartphones or mobile devices or tablets, you can also reach out to us via the WSBS app at your local app store or Google Play, and you can take us along wherever you go, anytime, anywhere around the world. And uh, Normally I work uh, 10 to 3 on weekdays, but this week I'm doing the morning show for my boss who's on vacation, and uh, I'm still going to be on my Saturday morning thing. So... It's getting up early now this week, and I'm trying to make this necessary adjustment, but I should be uh, lying down, taking it easy, and going to sleep to start a brand-new day tomorrow, but because I didn't want to miss out on my appearance for the Coliseum. Oh, thank you. And, I'm uh, greatly honored. You're very welcome. I made the ultimate sacrifice. I, at least I took a nap in the afternoon, so that's the good thing. Very, very so cool. As soon as I'm, and, uh... I'm glad that you made it on. I'm done with this interview. I'm going to bed. (laughs) Well, I think we're almost there. Yes, we are. We only have a couple more minutes. So um, not everybody pursues their dreams, and it's uh, often a rocky road uh, and uh, uh, sometimes very perilous, and uh, it's an uphill uh, climb, but it's one of the most satisfying things that one can do with one's life, to take one's dream and to uh, uh, reach and to reach it and to live it. Yeah. Uh, so any well, advice Hercules, for- you already knew ever since we were small, Bryce, that when I got my first transistor radio and the first yeah, voice so I heard from that transistor radio was the voice of my beloved friend and mentor, Dan Ingram, whose memory remains eternal and everlasting. And I pretty much had the experience in learning from him personally along with some of the other radio personalities at WABC and other New York metro area stations as well. The list is too long to even uh, accomplish as we're coming to the close of this uh, chat. But uh, my mind was set since I was three years old that I wanted to be a broadcaster, that I wanted to be a radio personality, that I wanted to, uh, you know, utilize my day in some way, shape, and form to be in a radio studio and to entertain an audience and to also have them listen to the show and engage in it as well in more ways than one. And my motto is if I made one person smile, wherever they're listening, whether on the radio or online or on the app, and I kind of gave them a little bit of a a jump start to their day, then my mission was completed after I got off the air for that day. I made people happy, and it's not because I'm in it to be a radio star. I'm not in it to be you know, in that studio for personal satisfaction or gain uh, to uh, pretty much feed my ego. It's more of like that I 
take attention to detail about the people that take the time and tune into my radio show and to pretty much give them a product that will have them come back the next day. And that's what is my mission in life is, that um, if Incredibly I can make awesome. people happy. And you're, you're living the dream and my, you're doing just that. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you again. You're living the dream and you're making it happen. I am, and just like you are too. And uh, you're our own way, shape, or form, you know, taking the identity of Hercules and Victus and actually, you know, farming yourself out to the public in uh, Bergen County, New Jersey, and getting yourself well-known on these uh, Internet radio programs. And uh, I can't wait till you start writing again. Oh, I've started writing. I've been published in 14 anthologies <laughs> this past year and a half. So I'm, wow. I'm writing, and uh, um, right now I'm working on a book. So uh, that that is uh, long underway. I'll show it to you next time I see you. Are you coming uh, this week for Thanksgiving? I'm going to stay local this week, Cuz, because I have to okay, work awesome. the next morning, and uh, the driving took too much out of me the last time I came down for the holidays because I have to be back at 6 o'clock the next morning. Uh, I will be down for Christmas because at least I can come down Christmas Eve and stay over Christmas Day and then leave at a reasonable time in the evening on Christmas Eve uh, and Christmas night. So, But I probably will see you prior to that. Unfortunately, Mother Nature has been putting a crimp on my coming down to New Jersey to visit my ailing mother and to come down to see you and Athena and everybody. But, you know, I'm going to make it happen soon. Uh, on the next clear Sunday, I will be down there for sure. Okay, awesome. Uh, it was great that you came on. Thank you very much for making the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, I wish you sweet dreams and uh, love you, and I will talk to you very soon. That you shall. I love you, cuz, and uh, keep on rocking, as I say, okay? Okay, be well, and uh, to all who've joined us, we're going to listen to a quick uh, song, and then we'll be back with uh, part two of today's show, which is Bold Spirits Holistic Concepts with Michael Del Russi. And until then, we're going to listen to Merlin Am I by Dave the Bard. All right, Kalinikta, everybody.
and welcome back to Voice of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus, your host, and I am greatly honored to announce the regular guest of our next segment, uh, the awesome and incredible Michael Del Russi. Greetings and welcome, Michael. How are you? Well, you're too kind, Hercules. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you and the family once again. 
and I'm excited to be here. Um, I liked your um, message, all the things you wanted to cover tonight. Uh, that's an amazing amount of information. And uh, uh, so I passed the scepter of Zeus to you and run with it. <laughs> I'm not sure I deserve that, but thank you so much. Thank you. I just wanted to cover some uh, recent information that I think might be useful to your audience, uh, those who train or who are interested in getting into training. Uh, I know you're a seasoned trainer, and as I am for many years, and I recently came across some information from the Muscular Development Journal that I'd like to share with the audience. And there's been a new study from the American College of Sports Medicine on the benefits of weight training, and it applies to both men and women. And it's a a pretty impressive list. Uh, They discovered that there's uh, fat loss and weight control, Uh, increased metabolism, increased calorie burning after exercise. We know that happens probably more specifically with weight training than it does any other form of exercise. A reduction in resting blood pressure, decreased risk of diabetes, uh, positive changes in lipid profiles, a decreased risk of osteoporosis, uh, increased bone mineral content, and improved physical image and improved self-esteem, which is so very important. You know, as yeah. we cross from the uh, from the uh, material world into the world of creative imagination, we know that's where that's where, where ideas become reality, and that's what our lives are all about. So, I think that's certainly an exciting list, to say the least. Yes, I, I think that's uh, wonderful, and why? Uh, would anybody not exercise after hearing all those benefits? Uh, those certainly would enhance anybody's life. Well, you know, uh, and uh, we probably grew up somewhat in the same era. Uh, you may or may not remember back in the day when the gym teachers told us, <clears throat> don't touch the weights, not even dumbbells. I know where I went I to school. Yes. <laughs> uh, they, weights were taboo. Weight training was completely taboo. Uh, I know on the East Coast, I can't speak. I know the West Coast was more open-minded to uh, weightlifting, weight uh, sculpting the body, contouring the body. But here on the East Coast, it was rare, very rare, that you had any sports uh, enthusiast, enthusiast or coach encourage you to use weights, uh, notwithstanding what sport you might be involved in. But, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes, which has been quoted so often, says there's nothing new under the sun. Well, that's not true, though, when it comes to weight resistance training and sculpting the body with resistance training. We know that new concepts are being introduced all the time. So there is something new under the sun when it comes to creating that physical ideal that we know was held up uh, primarily by the Greeks uh, in the Golden Age. So uh, it's exciting. And uh, in the early days, you know, most of the bodybuilders used, well, basically the straight bar and some of the basic compound movements that we know are so famous and have become so popular with building a massive strong physique, like the bench press and the squat and the deadlift, uh, dips and uh, what have you, uh, overhead press and the barbell row. And all of those movements did indeed build powerful physiques. But the problem yeah, yeah. is with a lot, a lot of these guys, especially Larry Scott, who you remember, he was, do you remember him? He was famous for his deltoids. And Frank Zane, 
a lot of these guys these these days have developed some severe well Larry Scott God rest his soul is not with us any longer but he advised against using the straight bar he felt as though utilizing dumbbells uh you could track the movement and you could would be able to maneuver the weights better depending on how you felt at that during that particular workout Frank Zane also encourages more cables and dumbbells these days so it's interesting, while those old-school uh, techniques, especially mainly with the straight barbell, did build powerful physiques, later on in life, in the late 30s and 40s and beyond, uh, these trainers did suffer some injuries. So it was kind of a learn-as-you-go uh, learn experience in some ways. That's true of all things uh, in life uh, and those worth doing. And uh, uh, as I've shared many times on the show, uh, by following some of the advice uh, I've gotten myself <laughs> into, uh, mm-hmm. you know, troubled waters uh, and developed diabetes, I believe, by following uh, uh, some suggestions of the pre-steroid uh, bodybuilders. But anyway, that, that that was my process of discovery, and I learned a lot uh uh, from it, they also had uh, dumbbells in uh, ancient uh, Greece, uh, or a type of dumbbell. Right now, they're called D weights, uh, mm-hmm. and they used to use them to jump. Also, they they would uh, like toss them and hold on to them, and it would increase the uh, length they were able to uh, uh, jump. And they were familiar with progressive uh, resistance. Uh, an athlete named Milo of Croton. Uh, he, right, Milo. Uh, Yes, he started picking up a calf uh, that was yes. born, picking up every day, and mm-hmm. uh, the calf eventually became a big bull. And because he conditioned himself to lift a little bit more each day as the calf uh, grew into a bull, he was able to eventually pick up the bull. And the bull was tame, uh, having been picked up so often that it wouldn't bite him <laughs> when he tried. So, uh, that's a famous uh, tale, yes. And uh, those of us who've been in, involved in the physical culture uh, world, yes, that's a famous, famous tale. And that, well, they were also uh, uh, made uh, involved in picking up heavy boulders and rocks yeah. and, and and running with them. In many ways, you know, again, it was a precursor, if you will, to what we see today with cross training. And what have you. So, you know, they were ahead of their time in terms of uh, honing and sculpting that ideal physique. The vision was constantly before them. Yes, the vision was uh, constantly before them. And uh, they immortalized it in statuary. They didn't have uh, uh, films uh, back then, but they had statues. So um, by looking at the statues uh, instead of uh, the pages of a magazine or images on the screen, people would become inspired uh, to work out. And these uh, figures were of uh, mythical uh, and legendary folks like Hermes and Hercules and Apollo. Uh, so there, too, there was that inspiration as well to be like these uh, figures from mythology uh, that uh, you admired. Uh, so uh, we're carrying on a very ancient uh, tradition that has changed over the millennia, but uh, uh, the core of it remains the same. Absolutely, and, and, and powerfully influential. As now and during the classical age, of course, and the human body was very much connected to the image of the gods, if you will. Now, the gods were, during the age of the golden age of Greece, as you know, 
the images of the gods were not really far from the human form. The human form was held up in a very sacred way, and it was sort of an uh, interconnection, if you will. The gods related very closely to you to the humans, uh, that, right. which was fascinating. It was fascinating, a fascinating time. They heard the voice of the gods more so than I think at any other time in history, really. And that's uh, that is something that uh, I'm developing a show so that we can explore that and give it the time that it needs. But uh, um, a lot of people aren't aware that uh, in ancient times when people spoke with the gods, they weren't exaggerating or speaking metaphorically. Uh, back then, our brains were wired in such a way where they were communicating with the higher power that was providing them with uh, uh, guidance and uh, and good advice. Uh, so that hey, I'm so excited to hear you say that because when I was studying the uh, the uh, research of Julian Jaynes when he wrote his famous uh, book, as you know, the bicameral uh, mind yeah. breakdown of the bicameral mind, uh, he uh, he felt what he missed where he missed out. I feel he felt that there were no gods speaking. There there was there was not an, an invisible dimension did not exist. Basically, uh, it was. The right brain uh, leading man to make his decisions during the course of his lifetime. And I think that's where he missed the boat, because I believe the right brain is a channel into the fourth dimension, the invisible world, if you will. And we know that that invisible world exists. Uh, yes. There's a show on, and I caught it on cable, a paranormal caught on tape. I don't know if you've seen it or not, where these no, uh, paranormal investigators, uh, they scan, they, they tour the world, really. Uh, they go into prisons and castles, and without a doubt, with the technology they have today, they're capturing doors closing by themselves, uh, spirit entities and forms. We know there's another dimension beyond this one, and where Julian James and there, that dimension may exist on, on multiple levels. When where Julian James missed the boat with his research in the bicameral mind, as you pointed out, and I'm I'm, I'm so excited at uh, the statement you made. Uh, he 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 left out the possibility of a, the existence of a fourth dimension. But we know there's another dimension beyond this one, and there's yeah. other voices and minds beyond this one. And that's where I feel he missed the boat. And the right brain, uh, if you will, I believe, is the channel for those other voices and those other gods speaking to us. As do I. I, I believe the same. I believe that there is a higher dimension, many higher dimensions, in fact, and that these are inhabited by intelligences that we understand through the mythical or religious images that, you know, we have um, and uh, that they use this to communicate to us in ways that we'll understand and accept. Uh, but I believe that these intelligences are not uh, the product of our brains, that there's something uh, that's inside of us as well as outside of us. They're, they're realities in and of themselves. So I'm looking forward to that particular journey. And since you brought up a paranormal adventure uh, in the past, several times in my life, I've investigated the paranormal. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm doing so again. So <laughs> if you'd well, like to exciting. go ahead, the invitation is open. I'll, I'll keep you um, posted on what's going on in that uh, particular uh, journey. I would I would love to uh, hear about that and uh, participate in that if possible because I I have had some experiences of my own and uh, yes. there's no question in my mind that there's another dimension beyond this and if we sensitize the channels of our mind 
to the invisible world. I believe we can do that. We can open up our channels to God, if you will. And we know whatever we put our focus on can become reality, as you, as you know. And when, yeah. both, when both hemispheres of our minds, when we concentrate on integrating them, both the left and right hemisphere, I believe all things are possible. And as I've said in the past, I just wish some of this, and I know you're a student of bicameral science, would be taught in the schools. I think we're really missing the boat here in so many ways. Yeah, I think so, too. What happens is that theories uh, become unpopular as they become popular, and uh, people often throw away the baby with the bathwater when it comes to these theories. So once the theory is no longer in vogue, they'll kind of dump everything out. Uh, I know I've had many conversations with uh, scholarly folks on matters of ancient uh, Greece. There are some uh, um, people who were in vogue in their day, like uh, um, Ellen Harrison and Walter Burkert, that is now are no longer in vogue. But some of mm-hmm. their theories were groundbreaking and opened my eyes to many things that I, you know, I, I had never thought of before. Um, even Robert Graves, uh, a lot of yes. his uh, interpretations uh, uh, were key in uh, opening my eyes to certain uh, spiritual uh, realizations, but they're no longer in fashion anymore. <laughs> so everything right. they said is discounted. And of course, Campbell with his writings on the, yeah. on the myth and the importance of the myths, uh, it, it, it cannot be overstated uh, that the myths enliven our, our minds that, the right brain has been neglected. How has it been neglected? The abilities, the creativity of our right brain has been neglected. Well, quite frankly, with the Industrial Revolution, what happened? When we became conscious, perhaps too conscious of the material world, the right brain at that point uh, took a back seat. In fact, even today, most of your brain researchers, they call the left brain, and this is funny to me in some ways, the dominant side of the brain, the dominant side. Well... Yes, in terms of surviving in this uh, uh, jungle of uh, electronics and steel, yes, we still do need survival mind. But I believe it's the creative mind, the right brain. That's who we are. That's what keeps us alive. That's what gives us hope for the future in terms of our own inner universe and growth. And that's what's been sorely lacking, but even in schools, as you know, when they cut the budget, what's the first thing they do? They cover. They cut the budget to the arts. They cut the budget to sports yeah. and music. Am I right? I mean, this is the first yeah. thing they do. In a, I mean, this has been the pattern for, in modern times. Yes, uh, you're absolutely correct. They cut the things that in antiquity were most uh, valued, the cultivation of your body and the cultivation of your mind and the cultivation of that in you that transcends the body and the mind. Those are often the things that are uh, targeted and cut. Exactly. And it's it's a tragedy because uh, I remember during the 80s, the most popular college course was business administration. Everybody everybody you talked to was taking business administration. And a lot of these kids, as we moved from the late 80s into the 90s, were out of work. Well, because, frankly, uh, they were overloaded with uh, graduates uh, with business administration degrees, but there were no job openings. You know, and again, it showed where the consciousness of the country was going. And uh, the, the bicameral experience was basically non-existent. No one really talked about it. 
And again, that's now we're entering into, I think, more of a creative age, as we were talking about last time. I think it's happening slowly, but it's happening. Businesses are looking for more creativity in what they do. And uh, even in their hiring, they're looking for employees who have perhaps more creative ideas going in. And it's happening slowly, but some corporations, some businesses, some fields of operation are looking for a more creative slant. Uh, from their employees. So there's there's hope. There's hope that that bicameral mind, that integrated mind, will take front and center in our consciousness as we move through the dec- through the decades. At least I hope so. I, I hope so uh, as well, because uh, the world we're creating um, logically uh, is is not. Uh, a very attractive uh, place. Uh, so uh, returning to the basics, returning to uh, um, ourselves as nature has conceived us or God or the spirits or the invisible or the fourth dimension, whatever you want to call it, uh, I think is a very good idea. Getting back to our source and operating from there rather than getting further lost in the uh, fantasy. Exactly. And I think that's going back to health and, and training and uh, Sculpting the body, I think creative mind is uh, taking a front and center there too. I mean, we know now that certain training techniques that have been uh, have been neglected or haven't been really discovered now are being utilized. And as we move into the later decades, and uh, uh, safer ways of training, safer ways of sculpting that I body ideal that we, uh, we we seek so desperately. Those of us who realize how special it really is. And both men and women, whether it be supersets, and uh, they're using dumbbells are being more used more frequently. Frequently, uh, I like something that uh, I've used with. Uh, I'm using uh, now and have shared with some individuals called holistic sets. Uh, they're not really supersets. They're sets where, in other words, let's say you're doing a set of dumbbell curls. At the same time, you would perform squats. Uh, you wouldn't use heavy weight, obviously. You would use light to medium weight. So if you're doing uh, two-arm dumbbell curls, you'd be squatting at the same time. I have found that doing five or six sets of a movement like that can be very productive, both in terms of developing the muscle and uh, stimulating the metabolic system, Uh, burning calories. So you're actually working anaerobically and aerobically at the same time. I call them holistic sets. Some others may have different uh, uh, terminology uh, in order to define these movements, but I think the same thing can be done whether you're working deltoids, uh, biceps, triceps. I mean, basically uh, utilizing the squat at the same time you're working the upper body. I call them holistic sets. I have, found, I have seen dramatic improvement in my own training and uh, training others with this kind of approach. And so, again, it's a matter of thinking creatively, thinking progressively, and moving forward. And the old school techniques were, of course, that's what started it all, and I have great respect for that. But moving beyond the straight bar and the cables, there's so many things we could do just with a set of medium to light dumbbells. It's amazing the muscular separation and definition you can create. And for a lot of, especially young people, uh, they neglect that aspect of total body sculpting. Um, so uh, I think it's something worth looking into. I, I will definitely experiment with it. Um, so basically, let's say I wanted to combine uh, uh, arm exercises with uh, with uh, the squats. 
would I do like a set of uh, um, like hammer curls or Zotman curls and then immediately follow it with a, a squat or would I perform them simultaneously? Simultaneously. Simultaneously. And that's why I call them holistic sets. You would, you would, if you're doing a two-arm dumbbell curl, you would squat with each repetition for whatever okay. repetitions you desire, 10, 15, 20. The same, you could perform the same, uh, uh, use the same method for a standing dumbbell press for even a tricep extension. Um, if you're, in fact, even uh, lying down, if you're doing a dumbbell press, you can do dumbbell, uh, dumbbell chest presses and knee crunches simultaneously. Uh, I call them holistic sets, and I'm utilizing them into my programs with some people that I'm training, and I find them exciting. They're different than supersets. A superset, is, as you know, you perform a set of curls, and then you perform a set of triceps or yeah. a, uh, a set of squats, whatever the case might be. Here you're working two, two different body parts simultaneously, and I have found that, well, it stimulates the, the metabolism like nothing I've experienced, and you're burning more calories, and you're getting terrific pump in, in, in the muscles. And I think it's something that's definitely worth integrating into one's training system. I will definitely experiment with that and let you know uh, what happens. I, um, Ryan Foley, who is also on uh, uh, one of the Mythic Fitness shows, uh, he had suggested something called the five system, where you start mm -hmm. with very light weights and then do five uh, uh, reps and then go to the next highest weight. Uh, and I also have uh, wrist and ankle weight. So I can increase with increment, increments of like two and a half pounds. Um, and then when you can't do five, that's your last one. And you do that twice and then you move mm -hmm. backwards to get to the lighter set. And yep. you don't, um, what's, what's amazing about it is you get a phenomenal uh, pump and basically you're doing a pyramid set, you know, and so right. you're doing like, pyramid sets uh, and mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's been very effective. I do that several times a week now. Uh, I'm also experimenting with light heavy. So this sounds mm -hmm. like something I'd love to try. So uh, tomorrow uh, I will uh, experiment with it. I'll pick an exercise and do the, um, you know, the holistic movement. And uh, uh, next time you're on, I can give you uh, an update on what happened. I would love to hear that. I would love to hear your uh, review of that because uh, I have found them very exciting, frankly. I call them holistic sets because, again, you're training two, two body parts simultaneously, and you're just stimulating the entire metabolism. The, the, the circulation is great, and you're getting a, a, a fabulous pump at the same time. And so I'm, I utilize it with, them with as many movements as I can. And, of course, uh, you know, you, the variety is the key. Uh, straight sets, uh, super sets, but right now this holistic uh, holistic sets are really uh, really creating some impressive results for me and some people that I'm training. So I'm trying to utilize that right now almost uh, exclusively that system of training. That that sounds awesome, and uh, I will contribute toward toward your research. Um, one of the things that I've been doing uh, lately, and it seems to be working very well for me, is uh, um, I do some things like uh, light meditation and visualization and stretching and uh, warm up in a series of mythical ways. So it sets my mind in terms of, you know, what I want to accomplish and prepares my body for the exercise. And I do that whenever I'm going to exercize, which now mm -hmm. is sometimes four or five, six times a day. 
But the thing is, my exercises are short. They're like 10, 15 minutes. But mm-hmm. they're very intense. And uh, That's found, the key. Yes. Right. I found don't plan, like, what days I'm going to take off or what days I'm going to do half, because life will throw that at me anyway. There's at least, like, two days a week where I'm not going to be able to exercise for, like, half a day for whatever reason. Uh, and there's always something that comes up that will take up the whole day. So I let the universe uh, set my rest time, but I plan on exercising every day. And then whenever I'm home, which is where my uh, um, my uh, home gym is, then I just do mm-hmm. that, like, a couple every few hours whenever I feel the energy and I found that I've had right. phenomenal results both in terms of my endurance and in terms of uh, my uh, uh, my muscles as well and uh, I, this way it gets rid of the whole planning the workouts and how long I'm going to spend and things like that I just work out continuously and I love the process of working out so it's not a chore it's joyous activity and that helps yeah, it a lot certainly is it certainly is, and I'm so glad you put it that way. You know, once you become enamored with seeking that physical ideal, and I've seen pictures of some women, uh, female trainers who are who weights are the priority, sculpting their bodies are the priority, uh, not so much lying on the ball or jumping around, and you know, uh, you know, some of the movements that are popular today, they want to sculpt their bodies, they want to yeah. seek that classic ideal. I have so much. I have to say this because I am so impressed with women, probably more than men, who put they put that hard nose old school effort into lifting those weights and sculpting their bodies and some women are so impressive and I'm so impressed with your dedication. In a world and society where there's so much temptation for us to cheat on our diets, to cheat that you know, we can live like well frankly, like a lot of people do. But they don't. They make the sacrifice because that classical ideal is their vision and what they do yeah. with their bodies is incredible. So I have to tip my hat to the women today who are putting so much effort into sculpting that classical body. It's very impressive. Yes, indeed. Uh, I, a, a lot of uh, people, regardless of uh, their age or their gender, uh, are getting into uh, fitness. And here I live in uh, Tenafly, which is mm-hmm. uh, healthy town here in New Jersey. It's been designated one of the healthier places uh, to live. And uh, really? I see people all the time walking, uh, uh, running, uh, riding bicycles, mm-hmm. uh, uh, going around the track, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. doing uh, oriental exercises in the park, you know. So uh, I, I feel gladdened whenever I see them. And uh, back in uh, 2015, I used to interview people as they were going about uh, uh, you know, doing these things. And I might start that again. Um, really? That would be fun. That would be fun to hear. Well, I wanted to share uh, one more study with you that I thought was most impressive. I had, I had mentioned this to you last time we were on, and that's about the, uh, that's, this is from the Journal of Medical Science and Sports Exercises, and it's about the cell mitochondria. The mitochondria, as you know, are the, is the powerhouse of the cells. The mito- yeah. a, a healthy mitochondria is associated with uh, uh, longevity and helping to avoid premature death. It was found that weight training in men and women over a 12-week period had, had ignited the mitochondria in terms of its performance and longevity. And it simply created a healthier cell. And this was over a 12-week period of weight training, both men and women, and this was from the uh, medical, science, uh, medical Journal of Sports Science. 
So I thought that was quite impressive because I think that's one of the keys to staying healthier longer is keeping the mitochondria of the cell as energized and healthier, as healthy as we can. So I thought that study was very important, and weight training was uh, primarily responsible for that. Um, yes, I have, to, I have to read that uh, more in more in greater depth and greater detail. Uh, but uh, thank you for introducing me and the audience uh, to it. Uh, you also sent some information on a new uh, um, vitamin. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I, I would like to discuss briefly bilberry. Uh, bilberry bilberry standardized. There's been a brand new study on bilberry especially for those who are suffering from circulation issues, like people with heart issues and, and, and diabetes and especially microcirculation, that bilberry was shown over a three-month period to enhance healthy circulation in individuals who were suffering from poor cardiac output. So I would encourage everyone, in fact, I've just gotten on it recently myself, to consider using bilberry standardized extract and adding that to their vitamin program. Uh, there are no contraindications, and every study has been very positive up to this point as far as enhancing circulation, which is so very important. Uh, and that goes along also with nitric oxide, which, of course, you know is a, very na is a natural substance, natural yeah. gas, which is produced by the body, but beetroot is very popular today because it produces an abundance of nitric oxide, which has been very health, helpful for cardiac patients and people suffering from heart disease. So uh, beetroot and uh, bilberry, I think, are certainly worth investigating and considering adding that to your program. I have been, uh, initially I tried too many things, and I couldn't track what was helping and what wasn't helping, so I slowed down. Uh, in my uh, vitamins, and I found that vitamin D3 works uh, very well. Uh, I've had mm -hmm. uh, great uh, results with that. Um, CLA, which most people don't get a good you know, uh, result with, I get excellent uh, results with. Um, I get great results with uh, lutein, especially uh, when it's in the Occuvite. Uh, my vision yes. it, uh, has, it has shown dramatic uh, improvement. I don't even need my reading glasses anymore. I do. Um, and here we talked about knowledge being discounted. I do eye exercises, which most people tell you aren't going to work. They, they work very well when combined with the yeah, uh, That's exciting because I have heard that from some other people that they do work extremely well in improving certain uh, uh, conditions. And on your suggestion, I started with vitamin C again. Um, yes. And it's soon to tell, but I remember uh, that worked very well for me in the past, so I have no doubt it'll work uh, again uh, in the near future. So um, I've also magnesium on your advice. I've been taking magnesium with good effect. So um, it's a process and it's slow, but better this way than the way I was doing it before, where I didn't know what effect I was getting or not getting. And I'm giving right, well, you, you know, once we do some basic research on these nutrients, then we can move from there. And what's exciting what you're right now and what we're both sharing is that somebody somewhere in your audience can benefit by what the concepts we're putting forth now and what is a concept it's an idea that's eventually uh, supported by scientific discovery and as we continue to discover the benefits of these natural supplements not only in science and studies and universities and laboratories but in our personal lives uh, the whole the whole experience becomes 
more exciting because if we can avoid having to go through uh, being treated by conventional therapy, if we can avoid that when possible, I think the body responds best to natural substances in terms of total healing. I, I agree with you. I just looked at the clock. <laughs> yes. The time way too quickly. Uh, it's always too short. Uh, I'm going to be contacting you in the week ahead. I have dreams for expanding what we're doing in the year uh, before us in 2020. So I want to dream powerfully with you. So uh, start collecting ideas. And when we brainstorm, uh, I'm going to be uh, expanding very greatly what we're doing with uh, optimal wellness. Well, that's great. I'd be, I'd be honored to participate. Thank you so much. And you recently published a new book on uh, prayers and praying effectively, and you have um, an excellent chart and another excellent uh, book. Uh, how can people um, access your uh, writings? Uh, they can write to me at uh, Michael Darussi, uh, Box 129, Caldwell, New Jersey, uh, 07006 at 07006. My creative health manual is still available for only $3 a copy. And with that, they will receive my Wisdom of the Hemispheres chart, which uh, I think can be quite inspirational, and I hope uh, everyone will consider doing that. Um, I agree with you. I put uh, links, if you're joining us via Facebook, uh, on my timeline, there are links to Michael's uh, personal page and also to Bold uh, Spirits Creative uh, uh, concepts, holistic concepts, I'm sorry. And yes, uh, that's where you can access uh, the material directly and you can order it. And I once again want to, would like to remind the audience that I'm available for free counseling. Anyone wants to write me, uh, they're welcome to do so. When they write me, I'll provide them with a phone number. They can call me and I will provide them for, with holistic uh, integrative counseling. Thank you again very much, and I look forward to our next conversation, Michael. Many blessings and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much, Hercules. I saying to you, bless you and the family. Thank you. Be well, my friend. Thank you, sir. You also. Um, before we proceed to our next segment, uh, I announced earlier that I'm bringing back our Mythic uh, Gaming uh, segment, which uh, is Mythic Reviews. So uh, not to cut into uh, the time of uh, our uh, regular guests, uh, I'm going to be reading the review now. And uh, this is for a game called Zeus on the Loose. Eight Olympians, Aphrodite, Apollo, Ares, Artemis, Athena, Hermes, Heron, Poseidon, attempt to keep Father Zeus under their influence long enough to spell his name one letter at a time, Whenever Mount Olympus's energy reaches a certain level, which happens to be 100 in the case of this game. As with many divine diversions, the purpose driving their contest remains enigmatic to mortal minds. However, Zeus on the Loose is a fun and fast-paced game suitable for young players, especially if you eliminate the same number sneak rule, which I will leave dangling. Um, the instruction booklet contains a brief introduction to the nine Greek gods involved in this adventure and serves as a springboard for further mythological explorations. And uh, this is a fun game, and I intend on uh, um, using it in the library. I must say that uh, I'm going to be uh, reviewing other items uh, very soon. Uh, LOD Enterprises has a wonderful line of Trojan War 
um, heroes, uh, which are suitable for miniatures combat. They also have Amazon, so we'll be uh, reviewing them soon. And we're also going to be Looting Atlantis. I'm looking greatly forward to that. And that's a new game by Shoot Again Games. So without further ado and without a musical uh, interlude, we're going to go straight to Timothy S.B. and Zach McAtee. Greetings, gentlemen. How are you? Greetings. Good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Alas, I was unable to come to Level 1 Games uh, last weekend um, because we're in the area that things got very busy, but I'm glad we're speaking tonight. Um, what is new and exciting in Level 1 Games? Uh, new and exciting. Yeah, we've been uh, super busy running our magic and Pokemon and stuff. We're uh, we're getting ready for our, you know, everybody does the Black Friday sale. Um, so we're going to be doing a sale Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And um, a little bit of insider info. We're going to be doing a flash sale on Wednesday, but we didn't announce that yet. So oh, wow. I'm officially announcing it now. Um, yeah, so stay tuned for that. What is a flash sale? Um, so a flash sale is, it's supposed to be announced that day or that morning saying like flash sale on these items, but I'm breaking the news a little bit early. Thank you. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That is uh, fantastic. And uh, Zach, how are things with you? I'm doing well. Glad to be on again. I'm glad that you're on, and anything new and exciting from Shoot Again Games? Uh, Not that I've been told. Uh, I know that they are very excited that uh, you're interested in Looting Atlantis, and I should be able to pick you up a review copy this coming Saturday. I'll pass it to Tim, and hopefully he can pass it along to you. That is fantastic. Another thing to look forward to when I come to Level 1 Games. Uh, that is uh, incredible. And I'm also looking forward to, I believe, uh, um, I have a 3D viewer for the PlayStation 4. So I'm looking forward to um, paying for that and picking it up. And also, uh, uh, you had told me that uh, Magic the Gathering is uh, coming out with their mythical Theros cards again, too. So something else to look forward to. I've lost some forward to. Yep, yeah, Theros Beyond Death is the full name of it. So I'm Ooh. curious to see if they resurrect some of the gods, maybe, or something, because there were some fallen gods. Um, so, yeah, it should be a pretty interesting January. But in December, we'll know some spoilers. Um, several game companies that I've been following are no longer there. Um, one is the, the folks who made Catalan. Uh, they seem to have closed their doors. And also... Uh, I had reviewed a game called Kiklavis so a while back, and so I was planning on reading that from uh, my archives today, uh, but I couldn't find their webpage or any information on them. So uh, uh, that's very sad because their game's incredible. Yeah, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with those. Yeah, Kiklavis was a uh, like an economics type of game, but it had uh, it, it had figures. Uh, and the figures were mythical uh, uh, creatures like cyclopses and giants and things like that. It was very similar um, in some ways to the D&D giant scheme. Okay. Um, 
there was a Greek mythical game for the PS4 uh, that was made by the same folks who made God of War. Um, Is there any update on that? Oh, interesting. Um, No, I haven't heard anything. Hopefully it didn't get shelved while they're working on the next God of War. Um, But it's a big studio, so I would assume that they would split and start working on it again. Yeah, they said that it was uh, it was a little bit more cartoony. I saw some screenshots than uh, God of War, uh, but it, it was you know very much immersed in uh, mythology. So that's something I'm looking forward to too. What was the name of it? Do you remember? No, uh, Gods and Monsters, maybe Gods and Heroes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't recall. I'll, I'll have to look it up. Okay. Yeah, I haven't heard anything, but. Uh... The general public would probably know quicker than we would sometimes. And Zach, um, last time you were on, you talked about some uh, uh, games that you were uh, putting together for Halloween. How did those uh, unfold? They went pretty well. Uh, I mentioned last time the one set in Chile where everybody was uh, exploring the ruins and talked about all the Chilean monsters and myths that I had to learn about. Uh, for the other one that I did, I used a system called Ten Candles, which is a very dramatic and character-driven uh, system. So the idea is the game's on a timer of ten actual tea light candles. Anytime somebody fails a roll or one of the candles goes out, you advance the scene forward. And when the last candle goes out, everyone is dead. So you go into it knowing Whoa. that all of your characters die. The idea is to tell the best story on the way there. So for the one we played recently, uh, there's no prep involved in this. The idea is everyone passes note cards to each other to give defining characteristics of who you are. For a player, you get three note cards, one positive trait, one negative trait, and what they call a brink, which is what you do when you're pushed to the edge. And then last of all, you pass to and from the DM the brink for the monsters and a brink to a player that only the DM knows. So I don't go into this knowing what the enemies are, who they're going to be, what they're going to fight, who their characters are. It's all improv and off the cuff. Um, so awesome. I believe the, the prompt I was given was one of the characters passed me the card that said, I have seen the enemy take apart machinery, and build strange new things. So (laughs) the setting was a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. Darkness has covered the skies. Stars have not been visible for 10 days. And all of a sudden, they start hearing screams on the ship. Slowly, things get more and more silent. They've formed a group locked up in one of the rooms, and they've realized they need to get to the engine of the ship, start it up, and try and steer it to safety. They journeyed through the ship, encountering glimpses of the enemies, until finally meeting some of them face-to-face, hulking behemoth crabbing from the abyssal deep with scavenged warships reconverted into dark technology and various squid, tentacle, vampiric creatures. And what they were doing was they had made surface contact, realized that this horrible glaring light of all the sudden stars was always present. And so they built these hulking 
whale-like leviathan machines powered by grinders in their mouths that would swallow up corpses and spit out a black pollution mist to block out the sky. At the end of the game, despite all of their best efforts, one of the ships came up and they became overrun by enemies, but one of the players has had the foresight to sabotage the boiler of the engine and blow up the ship. So at least they took some of them out with them. Wow. That sounds pretty intense. How did the players enjoy it? Uh, Tim. Yeah, it, like the intense is the is the best word. Um, yeah, the, the game, like Zach said, is super character driven, so it's meant to be taken like real seriously. You know, not that you're not having fun, but you're not joking around. You're trying to actually do stuff and make stuff happen. Um, but yeah, the, the the big payoff for me was the the final monster was, you know, like you said, like, it was a huge mechanical whale that breached the surface and. You know, it's just it's just good visual imagery, and the the whole cruise ship thing was creepy, and it was it was it's, Ten Candles is you know probably my favorite. It's amazing. So you actually like candles? Yeah, you get ten tea light candles, and you start the game by lighting three of them and beginning to explain how character creation works. After you okay. work through the first stage, then you light three more. Then you finish up that phase, light the last three before the final one. And once everyone's characters are completely ready, you light the last candle. The real kicker to the game is before everyone leaves whatever safe haven they're in, they figure they leave a message just in case things go wrong and they don't make it with the hopes <laughs> that maybe someone will find the message in case, as, as a last, reach out in the void. So you pass around a physical tape recorder, and everyone in character records this farewell on this tape recorder. After the very last candle goes out and you finish the narration of how everyone died, you hit play on the tape recorder. And in pitch black, in silence, you listen to everyone's final gasps into the void and realize that they never made it. Oh, wow. That is awesome. It's very, very uh, creative. Uh, you had mentioned last time some uh, game, a role-playing game that uses Jenga pieces as well. Yes. Uh, the game we played with the Chilean monsters used that system called Dread. Um, it's very fast and loose. It's, it, you need a bit more prep just for story-wise, but uh, the idea is instead of rolling dice, the DM will give you a number of blocks to pull based on how difficult what you're attempting to do is. If you knock over the tower, you fail. If you fail, you either die or are removed from the story in whatever way makes sense. Wow. So gone are the days of uh, polyhedra ruling uh, um, how (laughs) game situations are resolved. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I'm very big into trying to find, like, these smaller indie games. Uh, I found one recently that... I don't even know if he was attached to a company, but someone posted and said, oh, I'm working on a much more in-depth RPG, and it's kind of taxing me, so I took a break and made this short 10-page PDF of a a small RPG. And uh, it's called Comfy Tale, and instead of using dice, you get a standard deck of Uno cards. And then whenever you try to complete something, you each have a personal stack of 10 cards, and you flip over 
however many cards the DM tells you to, tally up the results based off their color and the number, and then see if you succeed or fail. It's a very short, simple game meant for, as they put it, uh, and I think the exact words were, if you come out of this with a story that you could tell your mother and she would smile and laugh at, that's the kind of tone it's going for. It's very, uh-huh. like, I, I don't want to say kid-friendly, but kid-friendly is a good word. Uh, very cutesy, kind of low stakes. So, like, the, the one I played with uh, with Jamie, her job was she was a miner, and someone in town, the blacksmith, needed a certain amount of gold for doing filigree on a tabard. And so she just went off to go find the gold, and that was it. Wow. Um, do your different games connect with each other? Is there like a larger game world or, or campaign or are there multiverse threads that uh, uh, connect the stories or do, do you produce uh, original stories uh, each time? I usually keep them self-contained, but as Tim can attest, I do have a few reoccurring themes, uh, most notably uh, Dark Water, is one of the few things that scares me in real life. So okay. whenever I play a game, I make sure that there's always something sinister involving them having to deal with water. So a common okay. one I'll do is they'll walk into a room, and the room is a narrow concrete walkway over a pit, but the pit is full of just black water, and the water covers the, the corridor by two to three inches. So when they're walking across this concrete corridor, they're stepping in the water and watching the ripples fade out, not knowing what's underneath of them. And uh, wow. <laughs> I usually put a dog in my games, and sometimes the dog is good, and sometimes the dog is secretly a monster in disguise, and they never know which. <laughs> wow. Um, wow, okay. Because when I... Uh, I started uh, role-playing back in the 70s dur- during the dawn of the uh, uh, role-playing games. And uh, what's hap- what happened since that time for decades was that uh, um, my games all connected in some way. There was one big story. And then just like uh, Marvel and DC stories, it got so complicated and convoluted uh, that I needed to simplify it. So for a couple of years, we had Time Wars, which kind of got rid of... Uh, you know, years and years and years of storyline and just kind of compacted it and kept the best of everything. Uh, so That's now we're cool. like a uh, timeline. So I know that uh, if, if you DM, especially if there are connections, eventually the connections get really, really cluttered. That I did do something similar once where uh, someone made a homebrew Pokemon tabletop RPG. So I ran a campaign of that for about two, two and a half years with only two players. And then after that one wrapped up, one of the players who had learned how to DM it from me, he went back to his home group and he asked my permission. He said, hey, can I run a game in the same universe set like 15 years afterwards? And they can see our characters. They can see the things, the changes we've made. And I had just been approached by a group to start running a Pokemon game for them. So we ran concurrent games in the same universe, and we would talk once a week, and he would say, okay, my players encountered these people, they did this, and every once in a while, the groups would hear about each other on the news or see effects. Maybe 
they help out a shopkeeper who then manages to open a new shop in the other country. And eventually, it culminated in the two of them. We had one giant meeting with, I think it was like 12 people. Uh, so some of them, the first time they'd ever met in person. And they all came together, and we both co-DM'd at the same time, switching off who was in the lead. Whenever the group split up, I would take mostly his players, he would take mostly mine. And we had written this big finale for them to work through before they had to go their separate ways again. Wow. Uh, I had something similar happen when I was in Holy, Pennsylvania. This is already going back uh, uh, over a decade. Um, but uh, there in uh, Holy, um, we had a Dungeon Masters Academy. So I used to teach the kids how to um, role play. Uh, and they were usually players from like the camps. And then they finished the academy, they were allowed to set up their own games in the uh, um, library independently of you know, what I was doing. And uh, a lot of times they would take the story threads that they enjoyed and further develop them. And then eventually they'd sit down with me and their campaign would tie into what we were doing. So further oh, expand really awesome. the, the storylines. Yeah, it, it was lots and lots of fun because uh, uh, yeah, people participated uh, in the adventure through different GMs and at different times. And there was continuity over years. And I ran into some of them when we had our store years later when they had kids of their own and they were talking about <laughs> these adventures with nostalgia. So that was very satisfying. <laughs> it's always great to see that you've made a lasting impression on your players, that they can reminisce on it and have that fond memory of the event. Incredible. Um, I'm starting again in uh, January. Right now I'm running a two-parter at the uh, Cresco Public Library. <laughs> Uh, a Voyage of the Argo, or Jason and the Argonauts. And last nice. time I ran this, it took two and a half years to finish, uh, which oh, is nice. about as long as the actual Argonaut voyage. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'm starting that again. Um, so I'm going to talk to you at some point. Maybe I could do an episode at uh, Level 1 Games and yeah, uh, see if anybody's interested in uh, a good old sword and sandal uh, adventuring. <laughs> I mean, you yeah, know I, that, I think that a lot of us have, would be. You'd have us. <laughs> wow, that that is we, awesome. We, we, we would have a, a decent group for that, I'd say, certainly. I'm looking at some old and new uh, gaming systems also. Um, I, I'm an old Tunnels and Trolls uh, person. That was like the second popular role-playing game to come out, and it simplified a lot of... Uh, uh, D&D, and it made a lot more sense uh, than the original D&D, uh, which is kind of cumbersome. Um, and now I'm looking at simpler things. Uh, so this way I could go over the rules with everybody, and in a couple of minutes they can play. So I'm still exploring different systems. But I will definitely get back to you about that. Yeah, awesome. That's why I personally like um, the more, like, one-shot ones, like Ten Candles and Dread and stuff. It's like... Uh-huh. It's more streamlined and easy. You don't have to remember so much stuff. You can just kind of lose yourself in the moment and not have to worry about, you know, crazy systems and, and everything. That's that's more of my speed and what I'm into. Have you ever heard of 1PG role-playing? I don't think so. I had reviewed that a while uh, back, um, but it's, it's PG is page, so it's one-page role-playing. And the idea was... Oh, uh, okay. Disposable heroes, you know, that uh, basically everybody would get together, you would pattern the game like on a, cinem- a cinematic adventure, like a movie, 
And then if you wanted to continue with the same characters, you could, but you didn't have to. The movie itself contained in another tell. So they started coming out with different genres. Uh, and they had Peplum, they had superheroes, they had Cthulhu uh, type of stuff, they had uh, cowboys, they had spies, you name it, they did uh, Kung Fu, they did all sorts of uh, different versions of it. Um, and the attributes would uh, change depending on the version that you were using, but they, it was pretty much the same mechanism and it was pretty uh, um, easy. Uh, so that's something that can be taught and uh, very quickly. And uh, so uh, it captures the flavor of different genres. So maybe we'll go with that uh, to start and see how it goes and then choose something else another time. That sounds like it could work well. Incredibly awesome. Um, so there's always something going on beyond your uh, immediate circle. Uh, you're involved in many creative things, uh, both of you. Uh, going past uh, the gaming, is there anything new and exciting going on? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, Zach, take it first. Let me let me think, see if I can think of something. Okay. Uh, has been too much new outside of that for me, but uh, I've I've gotten more into painting miniatures. So okay. I recently received a bunch of Kickstarter expansions from uh, the Dark Souls board game. And I've been painting some of those miniatures and trying to, to get better at that. That's a lot of fun. And uh, I used to paint miniatures back in the day, and I still have some of them. Uh, so I've been recycling them <laughs> uh, for, nice. the, for permutations of the mythical uh, game. Um, and uh, one of the things we did uh, recently was uh, we did a time travel one um, where we had, like, uh, the gods as ancient aliens – Okay. And they used technology to influence the dreams of uh, these heroes that they then took to the planet uh, Venus. And uh, because I was doing this part of a summer reading program for the library, uh, it was Edgar Rice Burroughs' Venus. So it was something inspired by it. This would encourage them to read uh, the Edgar Rice uh, uh, Burroughs uh, books. And then on the way back, we were attacked by Atlanteans and kind of were stuck in the modern day. Uh, and then we notice what's going on with uh, uh, clean water and the plastics and things like that. So uh, now uh, in part of the continuity is they're staying here where they're understood instead of Greek heroes as superheroes. And uh, they're going to try to clean up the uh, clean water um, problem before it kills everybody. So that's kind of like where the story is. And then part of them went back to the past. Uh, and they remembered it as a strange uh, dream, <laughs> and they they continued on uh, with like a prelude to Jason the Argonauts. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. That's a lot of good backstory. Um, okay, so Zach, you're you're doing uh, painting miniatures, and uh, Tim. Yeah, for for me, you know, video games and and that stuff is, and you know, card games and stuff is almost all encompassing. My uh, okay. other like real passions in in my life is music is like a huge part of like me and who I am. Um, I used to play like in a band in high school, but it's more of a high school thing. Um, but I, I'm a frequent concert goer. Like I just went to one a couple weeks ago for a local New Jersey band that celebrated 20 years of a record coming out. Um, and uh, I'm going to another show next week. Yeah, next week in New York City for 
a crazy, you know, like death metal band or whatever. Um, yeah, so it's really music and and games and hockey is another passion of mine. I don't play, but I'm a huge Devils fan, so this year's a little, <laughs> little rough for us, but you know. <laughs> Um, that is awesome. And if you'd like uh, to share your music on one of the shows, just uh, send me like uh, um, files and I'll download them and uh, we could uh, share the music with uh, uh, the people listening in. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to find some ones that are uh, appropriate. <laughs> some, <laughs> some of the stuff is, you know, a little crazy, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, I can, I can go through my library and see what I got. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I saw in a magazine um, that uh, they're bringing back some ancient classics like uh, Icewind Dale and uh, Boulder's Date and uh, Planescape Torment, uh, which were D&D, uh, um, like role-playing turn-based uh, war games, kind of. And uh, do you know anything about that that you could uh, share? I don't, I'm not sure about those, but I know that um, one of our favorite games is called Betrayal at House on the Hill, and there's okay. uh, it's a standalone version of it, but it's uh, Betrayal at Baldur's Gate is what it's called. Um, okay. And in my opinion, it, that's the way to play the game. I feel like they streamline the rules and some stuff a little bit better, um, and the, the setting is cool. You know, it's all Baldur's Gate setting. Um, but I know there's that one. I know that they just released. Um, a D&D book um, that's an offshoot of Baldur's Gate. I forget what, what it's called, but I have it in the store. I just don't remember the name of it. Um, so I don't, there's, there's, they're bringing those IPs back and, you know, bringing them back to popularity. Yeah, I, I was excited to see the, the games because my uh, computer no longer plays a lot of the old games uh, uh, because yeah. they're on the disc or... Um, they're on uh, CDs or yeah, CDs I believe. And uh, my computer tells me that it can't play <laughs> the game. So uh, some of my favorite games uh, are no longer playable, like Diablo 2. It won't let me play Diablo 2 anymore. Yeah, th- th- there's um, there's a few ways to work around that. Um, computers is another thing that I know decently well too, um, okay. where you need to put a virtual machine onto your computer that y- you would boot up like Windows 98 or something. Um, and then the disc would be able to read there. But there is a website, I forget, uh, GOG, goodoldgames.com. A lot of them are free, too, like like abandoned wear and stuff, where it they fix the code, I think, and they, it releases them for modern PCs. Some, something you might want to look into. There's probably some super old games that you probably forgot about that you played and able to play again now. GOG.com? I'll go there right now. Yep, yep. It's a uh, it's a pretty cool website. Um, like I said, it's a bunch of like abandoned ware of companies that have closed, you know, and the copyright went up, so they can put it up there. And a lot of them are free too. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting site. Okay, I will explore that uh, later at my leisure. But uh, what came up looks very interesting, so uh, um, I will leave that there. And uh, Diablo. Four is uh, coming out uh, also. Um, any uh, insight into that? I like Diablo one and two. I didn't care for three that much. Um, I know I don't have too much personal connection with Diablo. Um, my buddy used to play Diablo two a lot, 
and it was more of a me watching him because that's just okay. I was into that. And, uh, and I haven't heard anything about. I might jump into Diablo Four. Probably a good thing to jump into. Um, I haven't heard too much about it. But games that I'm interested in, I like to hear that they're coming out and when they're coming out, and then I don't see anything about it. I want to be surprised. Okay. <laughs> How about you, Zach? Do you like? To, I don't like to be surprised. I research everything to death and uh, you know, know what to expect. How about you, Zach? I flip flop. It really depends on like how into the IP I am. If it's something that it's like, oh, okay, this sounds like it might be interesting, but I'm not devoted to it. I'll research the hell out of it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if it's something that I really like, if a book's coming out or it came out recently, but I haven't gotten to buy it, and it's maybe in a series I've been reading by an author I like, I avoid it like the plague because I want to enjoy it organically. Okay. Yeah, like for yeah, me, they're, they're the new book, uh, the new Pokemon game just came out, which is the first uh, console, like full console release in a long time. Um, uh-huh. And that I just I heard little bits and pieces. I knew I was going to play it anyway, so I heard little bits and pieces of it. And now I'm playing through it now, and I have, you know, twenty. 30 hours into it already the past week. And I saw that um, the game you were talking about that uh, is based on the computer games, but it's a board game. Mm-hmm. I was in Anthony's store and I saw that. Uh, he had it in the window, so I was, I was looking at it. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a copy of it. Betrayal at Baldur's Gate is what it's called. It's really good. The pieces are nice. Um, the board's or the the tiles are nice. You build the you build the uh, the streets and the mansion as you go. And uh, it's something that you could easily integrate into your role playing game, just like the other D and D board games. Funnily enough, they actually put in some references to uh, like the D and D books, the expanded lore. So, like yes. one of the tiles is a statue of Minx and Boo. And you can pray to it to get, like, a boost to your speed. But they have all these little notes and stuff on the tiles. That If you know stuff about some of the expanded universe, it's really cool to see it all tied together. I remember, again, back in the day, they did the same with uh, um, uh, Drizdorn and Brunor Battlehammer and Wolfgar and Cadibri and Regis. Uh, those were the uh, Icewind Dale figures that uh, came pretty early and they wove them into so many different things. Last time I saw them uh, outside of uh, R.A. Salvador's uh, books uh, was in uh, a product called Dungeon Craft. It was like a book that got into dungeons and they included them uh, uh, in there as well. But it was fun to read about them, to encounter them in games, to encounter them uh, uh, in uh, role-playing adventures and, uh, um, you yeah, the the immersion factor became very very great and they did it in a very good way. It's always cool when you can tie in those real world references to get people to feel like this is a living world. Uh, one of the the games that I DM for Tim and some other people is called Die, and the idea uh-huh. is the world that they get sucked into is is based off of all of their real like their characters' real life likes dislikes favorite bands, favorite movies, etc. So they come into this fantasy kingdom and they found out that all the countries and capital cities are all named after these death metal bands that Tim and another character 
we're huge fans of. They find this church that's the Church of Ideas, and the head of the church is Stan Lee. Like, he looks just like him. He talks like him. His name's not Stan Lee, but he's Stan Lee. You know, so it's, it's, it's always cool when you can put those things in and like, wait, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to enjoy doing that. I used to include uh, characters from uh, popular culture, like from Saturday Night Live or Friday Nights or something. And unless somebody had experienced the character on television, they didn't really know what to expect. But the people who had seen, who knew about the character, uh, you know, they had insights into the character's uh, uh, character and how they were likely to behave and how uh, above board they were. But uh, we had a lot of fun with that uh, over the years. One of my favorites of that was uh, my cousin Harry, who was the person who first got me into trying tabletop RPGs. He had a recurring character. Rusty the Traveling Merchant. And so you would find him, Random Town, and he always sold gear that was like slightly off. Like something okay. was either wrong with it or there was a chance it might go wrong or it did something unexpected. And uh, what he did was almost every one of his games that he ran, Rusty would show up, but then all the people who played in his games would start incorporating Rusty into theirs. So at one point uh-huh. during my Pokemon campaign with the two players who had never met Rusty, I called up my cousin and I said, hey, can I have you sit in on a session? And I explained the system to him. I said, can you come up with like 10 really weird items that will work within the system and I'm going to have you phone in and just be Rusty just for this one-off session and sell them this useless <laughs> junk. <laughs> that is awesome. So you're like a, a professional dungeon master, uh, uh, it sounds like. I don't know if I'd say professional. I think that's uh, tooting my own horn a bit. <laughs> I just The way I look at it is I enjoy being a storyteller, and if I can get people to enjoy it while I'm doing it, that's a success. Mm-hmm. And I've asked both of you this uh, question before, but I'll ask it again uh, because you're so you're both so very creative. Uh, have you ever thought of collaborating on a uh, uh, project? Like uh, um, when I spoke to your aunt, um, I had uh, mentioned the game that you had with uh, the um, uh, South American monsters. Yeah. And uh, it sounded like a perfect expansion from Bigfoot versus uh, from Bigfoot yeah. versus Yeti. Uh, that you could just uh, like have an expansion that included all these new monsters and add a whole different dimension to uh, the game. Uh, I'm sure both of you, with your combined uh, knowledge and experience, uh, could come up with something really kick-ass um, in terms of a game. I appreciate yeah, the, 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 the confidence. Uh, the the, the the Chilean monsters would fit so well as an expansion. Like it, it, it would work so well. And people don't, like you pointed out, people don't have a lot of experience with them uh, also. So it'd be very delightful uh, to have a bunch of uh, challenges that aren't familiar. They're not elves or trolls or giants or, you know, unicorns. They're the creatures, the, the players probably haven't heard of. Uh, so, figuring out what to do would be very difficult. That was part of the joy of it, was some of them have such weird arcane rules because 
uh-huh. they're made from a different society. And so you have to understand that people in different cultures will look at these things a different way and have different priorities. One of them was a, a massive hairy snake. And he was blind, but he could echolocate, and he would dig up buried treasure. But for some reason, he was weak to alcohol. And so they encounter this giant 30-foot-long snake bristling with porcupine quills. And, and luckily, there had been a bar in town, and one of the characters threw a bottle to distract it. And when it sniffed where the bottle was, he saw it recoil from the alcohol. So he immediately ran, got a bunch of alcohol, and gave it to everybody else. And they managed to, to wound it enough where they could kill it. But it was great seeing them approach this problem they'd never thought about before and try and figure right. out a way to, to defeat it. I will leave you both with that thought because I really think that you guys could do something incredibly uh, awesome because uh, you do awesome things all the time with your creativity. So uh, anyway, uh, we've run out of time. Uh, even without the music ahead of time. I had a lot of fun speaking with both of you, and I look forward to the next time uh, we speak. Uh, Tim, I'll be by the store within the next week or so, and uh, uh, I wish you both a very healthy and happy Thanksgiving. Same to awesome. you. Thanks, Thanks for having us on. And look forward to you. I'll, I'll, have a, I'll have a copy of the uh, Bigfoot vs. Yeti for you, too, next time I see uh, you. Uh, Looting Atlantis. Looting Atlantis. Oh, Looting Atlantis, Looting sorry. Atlantis. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, we have a minute each. Uh, can you please tell people how they can enter your world? Uh, and we'll start with Tim. For us, it's uh, level1games.com, the number one, so level1games.com. Uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, um, we post all of our stuff up on there. Um, like I said, we're doing the uh, the sale Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, buy two, get one free, and 15% off, and a whole bunch of stuff. And then we're doing this quote-unquote secret flash sale on Wednesday. So keep a lookout for that. Thank you. And Zach? Uh, I don't really have too much of an online presence. Uh, you can always add me on Facebook. Uh, if you ever wanted to send me an email and reach out, uh, you can email me at zmca. E-E at gmail.com. Thanks again. Happy Thanksgiving and uh, joyous adventuring until next time. Have a great Happy night. Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too. And thanks to all who joined us tonight. Uh, be well and take care. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. <laughs>